The cliche has always been that Africa is a potential that has lived below its expectation. It's a story told of how a continent abundantly flown with the proverbial milk and honey still wanders in hunger. Yet the African story is not all about gloom. Africa is also a story of brilliance, inspiration, global breakthroughs, innovation and invention, of living hallmarks of a story that is rarely told. A story of an Africa that is changing, an Africa that has changed. Hello, my name is Isaac Koyuedenu Abwa, entrepreneur, thinker and writer. And here on the Change Africa podcast, I bring these stories to life. You're going to have up close and personal conversations with the change makers leading Africa's transformation. Thank you, Adisa, for coming to the podcast. Um, very honored to have you. Oh, I'm I'm honored to be here. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sure you guys are ready to hear children in the background right is a new norm um <laughs> so the call that i had this afternoon yeah was literally a call with the baby guests so we are more than happy. <laughs> it's like we are in a new norm of having babies on the podcast right? yeah, enjoying yeah I've, I've gone into a quiet space but i'm just aware that you know if they don't see me for a couple of minutes they'll start coming but we should be all right yeah, don't yeah worry. but what i told the guests is that it's funny how we want to, we seem to want to apologize for that, but it's all part of our life. We've all lived in chaotic like that. So it should be part of yeah. embracing the, the, the reality, actually, than trying to fake it. Um, yeah, yeah. Which relates That's to something good. we were talking about, Ghanaian behavior. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I just want to zero in on that. Um, so I'm actually yeah. writing the story. And I, I mean, I'm... I'm a ghostwriter, so I can't give details, but I'm writing the story of a man who is living in Canada, but had to come to Ghana because he just loved the country, came to do all this good work. But unfortunately, in trying to reciprocate that goodness to Ghanaians living in Canada, got himself in a lot of mess that almost ended his career and everything. Mm. And mm. I just want to have your view on on it, like, are Ghanaians wicked people in your perspective? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, there's no way to ask that question, but I, I want to ask you, that. that in your lived experience, is this something peculiar about Ghanaians that you feel like is distracted, that we should change? Because this is my view on the subject, that mm. we, we kind of overlook the reality of ourselves and want to tell a mm. story of people who are welcoming and people who are mm. kind and good so that mm. we can live in the lie and yeah. conceive ourselves. But truly, and the need is we are not that good people. And I just want to know your perspective on that. I mean, funny that you asked that question because, you know, my husband told me that, you, funny enough, all the people who duped him or you know tried to play a fast one on him have been Ghanaians and he's been quite shocked as well as Ghanaian well he's half Ghanaian okay um 
So, you know, but he, he lived here almost all his life. So, you know, in a sense, he's a foreigner when he comes to Ghana. But I think that, you know, amazes him is how everyone seems helpful in Ghana, but at the same time, they're just waiting to pounce and, you know, get something from you. And that's the thing that I think we Ghanaians overlook. So we have, it's like, you know, it's like brushing, using a paintbrush, a white brush, right? To, to color off a black face and pretend that the face is white. I think on the surface, Ghanaians can be nice, you know, welcoming, but deep within, I think Ghanaians are very crafty. You know, we, we try to say Nigerians are crafty and, you know, all that stuff. But I think I'd rather play with a Nigerian because it's that when you come into that relationship, you know what to expect. And they are very upfront with what they want. Ghanaians will never tell you what they want, but they know what they want and they work towards it. So you are living a lie, working towards the assumption that the Ghanaian doesn't know what he or she wants, but they do know, and they will try and push you to that end. And um, an example is, for, you know, if you ask the Ghanaian, like when we've come on holiday and we've wanted some work done, you ask a Ghanaian to come and do some work for you. So oh, how much would you charge me? They say, oh, just give me anything that you like, you know, <laughs> just give me anything that you like. But then the anything, actually, they've got a figure in their heads, you know, and they will get it by hook or crook. Um, the Canadian man, I'm not surprised. I think when you're abroad, the, the Ghanaian PR is very strong. I think most people find Ghana a safe space. So most people who've traveled to Africa would, would say, oh, Ghana is a nice place. The people don't disturb you. Um, so you know, they talk about security and all of that. But I think in terms of our behavior, we're really, we're cunning, I would say. And sometimes it's very distractive and, you know, ruins relationships and businesses and all of that. Yeah. Um, that's <laughs> quite a morbid note for us to start by destroying our country <laughs> on the podcast, but that's not the point. Um, yeah. My curiosity is, where does it come from? Do you have an idea? I don't have an idea. Um, and, and that confuses me because, you know, growing up, I, like, you know, with my parents, I would say, you know, very loving people, the extended family, very caring, wanting to know. And then when you grow up and you go out into the world to uni, and then you start working, then you see these sort of behaviors seeping in and you don't know exactly whether it's a learned experience that people, you know, whether people have learned over time or, you know, it's just been there, just hitting, waiting for an opportunity to burst out. I can't tell. Um, and I think it, it's, it will also be very wrong for me to brush every Ghanaian that way. I just think the core of our people have, those tendencies yeah you know there'll be some percentage that don't um tailor to that so it could be learned i i i really don't know i can't say whether do you think it's from our dna i don't know <laughs> i don't really think so that is from our dna mm. um i have a theory in my mind about mm. the birth of nations i guess mm. <laughs> and i feel like 
in Ghana's perspective, it's mm. it's um it's from the roots of our colonization and um mm. our independence. Um right. I, there's something there. There's something mm. that I'm missing. I think in mm. Ghana's particular case, there's something there. I feel like Ghana mm. is not a uniform state as it claims to be. There mm. is this underlining um, animosity, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Between people and, and tribes, and yeah. and some we've we've managed to keep the bubble from bursting, but mm. I don't know if it's a. If it's going to eventually burst, but I feel like. But it's it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, the British use this system called divide and rule, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So basically, making every Ghanaian suspicious of the other. And And it worked. Yeah, it really worked. And that's how they managed to conquer the country. It really did work. And, you know, so you wake up and you're very suspicious of the next door neighbor or your next tribe or your next king. And you are right, it might, it might be from there, you know, it might be um, that some of that system, the relic of it has just, you know, grown and formed its own bedrock in our psyche. And we're still struggling with that. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that for a very long time. And I feel like we didn't get the time. And I feel like it's most, um, it's what I think about most African countries. That we didn't get a time to process this um, leap from a colonized nation to an independent nation and Mm. to assess what it means to be free and what what we were paying for that freedom to happen or to to get that freedom. And it was a little of a rush process. And so we Mm. couldn't liberate ourselves from from the things that we wanted to, and we basically carried it into the new nation. And because of the speed of the progress that we wanted, I guess we have not been able to change that. And I could change that mindset. And I can say that about a lot of African countries. Recently, I was having a conversation about someone and we just started off like asking, oh, have you been to South Africa? And I was like, yeah, South Africa is a nice place, but... I think South Africa is an angry nation. It seems that they have not forgiven each other or something like that. You can feel it when you go to the country. Mm. And I wasn't there for long, but you can just feel it that there is a certain anger there. And maybe that's something that we have to think about as Africans as we go into the pursuit of African unity. Because I think that that may be what has restrain that process of so-called African unity. Well, it, it, it is, you know, it is that and some. I mean, imagine, you know, when Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and all those secretary and everyone was gunning for African unity. I'm sure that they had a certain plan of action. Unfortunately, the events before independence for, let's say, Ghana, just made it impossible for them to have that time, mm-hmm. you know, to do the transition properly. Yeah. And don't forget that independence wasn't given to us on a silver platter. Like the British didn't say, we've had enough, so here you go, take it. I mean, Nkrumah and the rest just had to really fight for it and, you know, wrestle it from the colonialists. 
Um, and so that time for transition didn't happen because there was this excitement, you know, to the unknown, the unknown. And, you know, eventually the unknown, which became known, you know, people found out that, oh, maybe this is not really what we wanted to. But then from then on, the process has just been, you know, one thing to the other. Um, so we, as a nation, I'm not sure as a nation, we've had the opportunity. Of course, we are the generation way after. So we are just, you know, imbibing the relics of independence and the stories are being told. But I think our forefathers didn't have the opportunity to really sit and, you know, understand the implications and also just have a, a thorough process of where we really wanted to go. I think it was just independence plus any other thing. And, and, and we're still in that process. I, don't even, I know that we are free on paper, but I just think that we are not free as a people. You know, we are still looking for that external endorsement, the external, um, what do you call it? The external certification that we are worth what we are, you know? And, and then we have this new community of diasporans, isn't it? People like me who've traveled out and now we're forming this community abroad, you know, and we are in between. So we've come here and realized that, look, what we've got back home is good, but needs some refining. But then we are in between this dangle of the developed and the, you know, developing or the colonial <laughs> and the colonized. Mm -hmm. And we're like a new crop of people also now trying to carve out this identity. For yourselves. Um, for ourselves. And then when we come home, we're thinking this new identity that we found in the diaspora. Doesn't fit. That is, you, you get what I mean? So yeah. we, 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 there's this pendulum just swinging here and there. And at some point, we, we need to sit back and think, what does it mean for us as Ghanaians to even be developed or to be free? You know? Yeah, I think that's the question we never ask ourselves. And that's very yeah. true. Yeah. Anyway, that has been an mm. interesting thought experiment. <laughs> <laughs> so, Adisa, you are a communications professional. You started as a journalist. Can you take us through your professional journey and why you went into journalism in the first place? Uh, funny enough, I think I never set out to be a journalist, you know. I think when I was a young girl, I wanted to be a pilot. I had, a, I had this knack you know, an interest for airplanes. I would sit outside, you know, um, our house and just be looking in the skies and see the airplanes go and, you know, count them. And I just loved the sound of it. I wanted to be a pilot. That was my dream. And then one day, you know, I don't know whether you remember um, Salma Al-Hassan. She was a GBC news reader. Yes, I, um, I've heard the name. Yeah. yeah. So I saw her reading the news on GBC and I, I just I was mesmerized I just think she was so perfect in the way she spoke and you know just had the way she carried herself on screen and I was like ah this is this looks really good <laughs> you know 
And I think maybe that would be my first time of coming into contact with the profession journalism, but I didn't really make much of it. I think from the age of 10, if you had asked me, I would say I wanted to be a pilot. And then when I went to secondary school, of course, like I say, life is not linear. So, you know, events that happened in my life just meant that I had to take another course. And um, Radio Universe, when I was in Legon, gave me my first, first bite at journalism. And I loved it. And from then on, I started just doing writing and radio. I was really good at radio. And then I had some stints with um, Wankra, Metro TV, doing sports. I was very much into sports. Um, and then, yeah, I think it's just being, I haven't really, I didn't really sit down and say I wanted to be a journalist. I just think the opportunities came and I took them. Um, and I did that for more than 10 years. And then I thought I had enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it was also because of the, um, climate you know in Ghana right because when when I started out being a female journalist was tough in itself and then you had that thing of you know media houses not paying you know and people were you know journalists had all the name on radio and yet your pay was just not good enough to take you through you had to take soleil you know all that stuff so demeaning you know Mm-hmm. And I just thought that there was no respect, you know, I, I really quit for that. And I thought we weren't respected enough unless you were, I don't know, at some level. Um, and that really killed my interest in it, actually. I, I thought to myself, this is not the kind of profession. I don't want to be going to cover a story, you know, just with the intention that I would get some 20 cities at the end of it to take me home you know it's just like yeah. crazy yeah <laughs> yeah so um, I, I yeah okay no go on go on <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yeah this is the problem of zoom calls um so radio universe just mm. my take on Ghanaian journalism as a state as a stance now that mm. it almost seems like all the journalists well, from as far back as your days to living now, mm-hmm. it seems that Radio Universe is producing a crop of very healthy Ghanaian journalists. What is GIJ doing? Well, I mean, I didn't go to GIJ. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know, I know, but I'm just posing the question, right? That I, what is happening yeah. to the Ghana's premier journalism school? I mean, I think from where I sit now and looking back, you know, um, I think Radio Universe gave a very practical um, space for amateurs to come and make all the mistakes without the burden of all these theoretical things, you know, in the classroom. So you actually came in like a raw person, like you've got, zero idea how what even a microphone is or a console or anything you like you didn't have any terminology from the media space you were just a young person hungry to do something you know with your life or try something new and then we had this boss Alaji yeah I know Alaji had he had the all the um 
training, right? He had the academic behind him and he had the foresight as well. And he just had a way of nurturing raw talent and making people just develop out of their shell and gave them that confidence to say, what you learn here is good enough for you to take with you with just some few, you know, touching up. And I think we all benefited. I mean, my group at the time was Bernard Avle, Albert Kwashiga, um, um, I've forgotten their names actually, Kablan. Um, we had Amanda Kofi, all those people. We all came from, that was my generation at Radio Universe. And we all just had that confidence that after universe, we could really do something. I think GIJ is probably riddled with the same thing we talked about, the colonial relic, right? About It's about getting the certificate. But after you get the certificate, what else? And it's about rattling off all the terminologies and doing a thesis, which is not bad in itself. You know, of course, get a certificate or a degree if you have to. But, you know, does it give enough practical space for people to want to come out of there and go into radio? So maybe they need to partner. Maybe GIJ needs to partner with Radio Universe. Universe should be their practical studio and give people... Journalism is about experience, right? You're not going to go to a minister to interview them and they ask you what is media relations or what is what. They just... You are there with the minister, ask the reasonable questions and get the story out. And that needs a lot of practice. So I guess that's why universe is being very successful. Yeah, I think, I think that is true. I have been thinking a lot about, for a very long time actually, about the state of education as far as high school. I, I was like <laughs> the prototypical good student until I got to high school. And then I became a <laughs> Because mm-hmm. it's like a light bulb moment of, oh my God, I've been wasting my time. And <laughs> I didn't want to do that anymore. And it felt like, oh, now my education career went into the drain. But mm. just from what you're saying, what do you think about how education should be conducted? You know, here's the thought. The most impressive people that we know of, mm-hmm. so-called geniuses that Einstein, etc. There were people who although went through some form of formal education, were also um, rebels of that system. But what really made them what they became was both the practicality of what they learned and mentorship. So Mm. thinking about that and from the experience and the example you've given about radio, do you feel like the evolution of, or maybe even, Going back into the past, we should go and mm. copy some of the relics of what really made education what it was. Because I feel like, for example, um, Aristotle, Socrates, um, Alexander, it's just Tycho Brahe, Johannes Kepler. It's, it's, mm. It was just a mentorship journey more than it was copying anything. So should mm. education really be that? Like there's a maestro and then there's a servant learning something from him. And through that mm. process, learns a trade and eventually grows on to become a master himself. Is that more a more, um, I guess, action-oriented, practical way towards education? I mean, to begin with, um, 
we're looking at two different contexts. So, I mean, Socrates and the rest could do that because the system allowed them to do it. And I think the developed countries have the advantage. You've got facility, you've got opportunity to do all of this and still be able to sustain yourself. And also you have the opportunity to, to work and to learn and like have meaningful work and meaningful learning. So you could do both if you wanted to. And also the system, the education system in the developed world, it's not just straight, straight um, academics. There are different routes for different people. So by the time you finish, um, you know, your GCSEs or levels, you probably know whether you want to take an academic route or you want to go the trade route or you want to go apprenticeships or you just want to, you know, stay and do something completely different. I think from my experience schooling in Ghana, it's like there is just one route for you. Yeah, if you wanted to be somebody meaningful, there was just one option. So you go through your primary school, you know, you go through junior high, senior high, and the expectation of your family and everybody, including the system, is for you to go to uni. And if you didn't get to uni, it just meant that you were bad. You were standard B or standard C. So yeah, those who didn't get to uni will go to polytechnic. And polytechnics are meant to be like second fiddle in terms of perception and even just in terms of training. And if you didn't get into polytechnics, you know, you probably went into teacher training or, you know, you just fell by the wayside. So there, were, there is just one route approach. And the thing that we find out or I have found out is that not everybody is academically gifted. You know, people are academic from, you know, beginning. And somewhere they just realize that they don't want to do it anymore. They want to do, they want to go into entrepreneurship. You know, should you go to uni before you become an entrepreneur? Absolutely not. Yeah. You could be in primary school and still have that basic education on entrepreneurship or creation, you know, being creative in a way and decide that you didn't want to go through all this academic route to get what? 10 F's and get your confidence broken. Meanwhile, you are a genius at building a business, you know? And so I think that is, that is the challenge that we have in Ghana, for example. And unfortunately, a lot of children and a lot of young people are having their ambitions deemed so early and not given the opportunity to try out different things. And I keep saying this, Isaac, there is no developed country that has been able to, you know, grow without the contribu significant contribution of entrepreneurs. You have to have people who want to create and to take to be able to develop. And if we don't create that education system that allows for young people to try out this entrepreneurship route and, and give them the opportunity to create, to add to what the country already has, instead of just wanting to take and take and take, we can never grow. And it's a very crucial thing. We need to talk about it and we need to look at it as a nation devoid of any partisanship. You know, it's about the future of our kids, you know. Um, I'll tell you an example. So I had a friend who, you know, who's whose daughter was back home and you know she wasn't doing too well academically 
and because all the teachers wrote her off and things like that and she managed to bring her to join her here you know and it turns out that the girl is just not academically gifted but give her a paper and a pen to do animation yeah just lock her in the room and give her animation to do and she will come out with creative stuff that you can even use in disney movies you know but and I've, it's sad. She doesn't have to come to London to discover that. We should have the opportunity in Ghana for her to do that. I think that is very, very interesting stuff. Um, I would like to go back on the thing you said about dimming young people's potential. Mm. I have been thinking, I, am not, I don't have a child yet, <laughs> but I have been thinking a lot about developing potential of people. And I feel like one of the greatest gifts that parents could give to their children Mm. is the ability to believe in themselves and Mm. in the boundless potential that um, they could exploit in themselves. Mm. But somehow, especially in Ghana and across Mm. Africa, we kill that instead of inspire that in them. What has been it's, because, it's because the parents is because the parents themselves are struggling to survive you know mm-hmm. i mean you you wake up in Ghana you're struggling you know your pay is not good, you have school fees to pay, you've got rent if you're lucky, you probably have a house, but if you're not, you're paying your rent, you've got fuel, you've got electricity, you've got water, yeah, you've got food that is astronomical in price yeah so you wake up as a parent and like you're really you've got traffic that's killing you and you're thinking you need to survive first to be able to let your kids survive right if you don't have that money at the end of the month your child will be sent home from school so you you don't even have that brain space to have that internal introspection and say this is where my child is and so I need to sit back and ha- no, no, you don't have that time. Most parents, middle-class parents in Ghana working probably have a nanny or, you know, or a relative who is looking after the kids. They probably see the kids more at the weekend, but the weekend, if you're middle-class in Accra, you're probably taking them swimming or you want to occupy them, you know, just like you've seen abroad and things like that. Sunday you go to church, you know, I'm assuming, of course, Friday people go to mosque. So you, you really don't have that space to have that conversation. The system is so stifling, you know. And even if you had that conversation with yourself and your children, you're thinking, look at this system that I'm living in. Where is the opportunity for anything, you know? So I, I wouldn't say that the parents are to blame primarily. I think I know we don't want to say government, 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 but I, I think it gets to a point where we need to say that, yeah, government has the duty to create the spaces to make people just be able to, um, you know, reach the potentials that they've got. Uh, there's just too much tension between the young people and the parents, isn't it? Because young people feel they've got so much to offer and yet there's no space. There's no opportunity. Is it a dead end? I wouldn't say so. I I mean, it's frustrating, right? 
10 years ago, if you had asked me this question, I would be like so, so optimistic and would not blink to tell you a yes. But I think over time and just watching things from here, sometimes it feels like we're moving, you know, five steps back and 10, five steps forward and 10 backwards, you know, but we can't keep doing that. It's not about change of government or change you know i think it's change of mindset if we don't have that change of mindset isaac i i don't know you can bring another Nkrumah or rawlings into the scene and you know it will still be the same as a people you know this goes back to our first question right the first conversation we had mm-hmm. as a people we need a renewal of our mindsets to really think about what is important for us as a people. Where do we want to go? Yes, forget it. We've made all the mistakes in the past 60 plus years. Here we are in 2020. Where do we want to go? What are the key priorities for Ghana right now? If you ask any Ghanaian, do they know? Like what is the key priority for the next 10 years on the development agenda? Is it education, science? Is it, you know, social cohesion, security? What is it? We don't, it just seems that we don't have a plan, but we need that to be able to make any headway. Yeah. So I want to ask you a twofold question. Um, first, how did you get to landing? And second, how did that culminate into starting your social enterprise, Abdul? Um. I mean, I came to London because, you know, I I had gone married. Unfortunately, I lost my mom and, you know, I had a new baby and I just thought it was just a lot happening to me at one point in time. So I think it was just the right time for a change of scene and, you know, to start afresh. And I think even before then, I just felt like there were just too many bottlenecks, you know, for my development. Because very early on, I think in Legon, I realized that I am not your typical, um, you know, Ghanaian woman wanting to, you know, just go through the system and go get a job in the office nine to five and get paid. I, I don't do that. I think I realized that very early on. So even in Legon, I started a company by the help of, um, sorry, with the help of a friend of mine called Elvis, who's, who's still there. Um, I started Abjel actually in Ghana. And mm-hmm. at the time, my main focus was, I think I had a conversation with a guy. I can't remember his name. He was a year below me. And he'd come back from holiday and said, you know what? He'd used the entire holiday to comb the entire Accra, just looking for someone to take him on as an intern. And he was unsuccessful. So we were having this chat. And then I had that light bulb switch moment. And I thought, what if I set up a company, right? And my job will be to go around companies and tell them that I can provide them with leg on, you know. Um, Interns. Yeah, who could come and do internship with you. And then w- Elvis, What year did you do that? That would be in, I think it was 2003, possibly. 2003, 2004. Was it in your third or second year in school? No, it was it was my second year going on third. 
Mm-hmm. So it was just second year, you know, getting to the holiday, the long holiday to, for us to get to level 300. And so I really just got, I got pumped. And luckily I talked to Elvis, then he was my very good friend. So we had the chat and he said, look, Adisa, if you think this is what you want to do, just go ahead and do it, you know. And I went around, I think the first company that we got was um, Living Room, you know, the cinema in East Legon. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he was the first person who said, yes, I will take two Legonites on, yeah, and give them that experience. And on top of it, I will pay them. I mean, that was amazing, right? But mm-hmm. guess what? The guy who owned it was also an expert. I mean, he was a returnee. So okay. he understood what it meant to give the opportunity to these guys. Yeah. So, and that really just started this Abjel thing. And then I went into event management to give the ladies in Legon the opportunity as well. So we'll go and bid for some of these state events and provide... Um, you know, ushering services. Usher, yeah, ushers. And we'll do secretarial work. We did a big conference with the World Bank in um in Legon. And um, they had this entrepreneurship conference. And you know, we went to bid for it. And thanks to Kopichikata, you know, um, we got that contract. We helped them with the event management service in Legon. And like we had how many? About 50 women, 50 ladies from Legon. Yeah, who got paid. And from then on, it was just like one, you know, we had the US Marine Corps come to Ghana and Abdel was supporting that as well. And then we had um, um, Dr. Marcus Mann, the chiropractor. He brought some African-American chiropractors to Accra. And it was just, and, and I could see, you know, that difference that that made to these young ladies and young men just having the opportunity to work and earn some money, but also the exposure and just that opportunity. The word is opportunity. It wasn't the money. It was the opportunity to know that you can actually do something other than being in a classroom or doing a nine to five, you know? And so I think at that point I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know the name, Isaac. I didn't know it was called entrepreneurship at the time. (laughs) I just knew that I wanted to do something. I wanted to, I wanted to give, I wanted to change something. And so moving to London just gave me perspective, right? I knew I wanted to do it in Ghana. I didn't know the how I struggled to do this Abjel in Ghana. And it took a lot of time, energy and effort. And then coming to London was just a different perspective, like seeing 10 year olds building stuff seeing 12-year-olds, you know, sitting at the table with like these big guys in science and making an input. I mean, that was just like, wow, you know. And so I decided to extend the Abjel brand here. So I I set up Abjel Communications. And I think it was communications because of my, you know, recent experience as a communicator but also it was because I had seen a lot of African entrepreneurs come out here for conferences. And then when somebody from BBC approached them to have a chat with them, like it was just, it was like, come on, sell your product, sell your product. You know, don't panic. These are your colleagues, <laughs> you know? 
but here we are. Um, so that's how I've just started here anyway, and still going strong. Yeah, that's a very, that's a very inspiring story. What if I told you that when mm-hmm. I was at Legon, I formed mm-hmm. a company that linked student interns to companies? Oh my God, really? <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did. So I was very, I mean, I was just waiting for you to finish and I was like, wow, that's an interesting story. Yeah. I know, I see. And how mm-hmm. did that go? Yeah, we, well, before I completed school and I left that, um, mm-hmm. we were a finalist in the Anzija Prize. Ranzija right. Prize is um, mm. um, an entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship prize by African Leadership Academy for young entrepreneurs. Yeah, so mm. one of mine started it, and we we we, we did pretty well. We organized programs with EcoBank and mm. all the other things. Yeah, so wow, but that is an important, you know, that is an important missing link in the education of our children in Ghana. You know, you go to the classroom, spend four or five years, yeah? And then when you come out, that practical experience is not there. So you get a job at EcoBank, yeah? And all you know is to spew out a theory, yeah? Mm -hmm. You can rattle all the economic terms, but when they put you there to do the job, you can't do it really well. You know, it it, it, it it doesn't work, you know? I think work. what I found, what I found even more shocking mm. and inability to um, work on the job is that mm. young people, when they go into these spaces, they can't even speak up. They are so, their confidence is so beaten down somehow, but yep. probably by a classroom system that told them never to ask questions, but they don't want to speak. It's yeah. either they don't have anything to say or they just don't want to speak. And mm. that is the saddest thing for me. And I am around all these people and I am always speaking because obviously I want to air my views and opinions, but it was yeah. always so sad not getting other people to do so. But I could also understand why, because I was not liked in many of my classes because I was the guy yeah. who just came to the class and asked too many questions. And even students were like, why don't you want to just <laughs> let us go? We should just go, you know, let's just go on. And I'm like, oh, why are you guys studying this? You should want mm. to understand. You should want to uh, find out why these things exist before you just learn them. But yeah. anyway, um, so that's, that's the struggle. And I guess that's why eventually I found myself entrepreneurship because I guess people who eventually go there are people who, who are fundamentally crazy, right? think, yeah, people <laughs> who fundamentally think that there's something wrong and then yeah. there's a hammering in their hearts that can't stop and then they just wanted to stop. So they want to just do something about it. They uh, want to change the, the status quo. So look at my, my profile on WhatsApp here. Yeah? Mm-hmm. This is what I've got. I've got, one of um, Steve Jobs's co- um, quotes, which says, the ones who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. do yeah. And I think it's my favorite quote, quote of all times. I think it, it, it just goes to show to be an entrepreneur, it's not an easy thing. And yet for those who dare, 
is because they have that belief that in all the craziness and all the challenges that they can face, they actually believe that they can make change. And most of the times when we talk about change, people think it has to be global, right? You have to be like a Zuckerberg or a Jack or, you know, a Bill Gates. But oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes the change could be as little as in your household. You know, it could be as little as in your community, in your country. It could be in your region, in Ghana's case, you know, it could be on the continent of Africa. You could be on a known entity to the global media. And yet the change is so real for the people who are actually experiencing the change that, and, and that is how crazy entrepreneurship is. You know, somebody said, it's only an entrepreneur who is crazy enough to think that a nine to five job was too much for them, but would rather go and do <laughs> a 24 <laughs> hour shift. I know, I know. I could never <laughs> reconcile that. People are like, oh, I'm going to do nine to five. But you are killing yourself doing 24 hours. So, I know. Yeah. So it's really not about the time. It's really about the problem that you want to solve. It's, yeah, I mean, it's about the problem, isn't it? And the solution that, that that's real for every entrepreneur. I don't know how you feel, but my thrill, it's about finding the solution. Like it doesn't matter how long or how tiring. Yeah, I, I will moan sometimes and say, oh, this is really a lot of work. But, you know, the next minute I'll be back at it trying to crack you know, um, a code for that solution. So that's that's how we are. Yeah. yeah how I feel about it is that mm. I have recognized that I hate the monotony of actions and repetitions mm. of jobs that don't challenge you to rethink the scenarios, to rethink the assumptions of how they are supposed to be done. And I find mm. that almost... Um, in every job that is nine to five, not because mm. they are supposed to be so, but because they are set up in an institutional structure that has mm. to be procedure. And you as one person cannot come and disrupt that. So you are yeah. more likely to follow that. And I find that even if I am doing so well at it, it is not challenging enough. And although I say this, it's very stupid. I find myself wanting to build environments where I am not sure whether I'll succeed. Yeah. Yeah. I just might fail. You like the the And I like that I just (laughs) might fail, but I also get just might succeed. And because I do not obviously want to fail, I work harder. Mm. And I I always want to... um, do the most difficult things and i guess i say this all that it's very stupid you shouldn't want to worry yourself but i find myself being drawn to things that are complicated and difficult to solve because that is where the satisfaction will eventually come from no matter how long yeah. it takes yeah. But yeah no yeah that's how it is isn't it um it's about satisfaction knowing that you found you know a solution to a problem so I like the fact that you say you like being in uncomfortable situations and uncertain situations, because I think that is, I don't know, most, I can't speak for every entrepreneur, but obviously in my case, yes, 
you know, the thing that everyone is running from is possibly the one that I'll be running towards. Um, not foolishly, but just because I like to take a crack at the problem. Um, and, and, that, and that in itself is worth more than, you know, anything you can ask for. And I think, you know, that there was a survey recently about people and their work, you know, how satisfied people are. And a lot of people are not satisfied with their nine to fives. Yeah, it pays the bills and do, but you know, people want to do meaningful stuff. And I think to be an entrepreneur is a blessing. Not everybody has that ability to quit a nine to five job. One, maybe because it's just not in their character or to maybe, you know, they don't have the resources to be able to be entrepreneurs. They've got so much responsibility that all they can do is to do a nine to five job. Um, and some people just don't have systems in place to encourage that. So they don't have a crack at it at all. So to be an entrepreneur is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And to fail, you, do you get thrills from failing? Apart from crying over a failed attempt, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, cry, 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 you would cry. <laughs> cry, you would cry. You cannot run away from the crying. Yeah. Um, but then after the crying, you actually have this fire in your belly to go yes, again. Yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> obviously. Uh, so I'm starting, I'm building this startup, um, which is in the urban mobility transportation space. And I started with a guy that I put so much trust in. And then one mm-hmm. day just called me and said, I'm not doing this again. And I cried. <laughs> I cried. I was so disappointed. But the next day I was at it. In the next three days, yeah. I recruited two people. Who, uh, yeah. who have more than 14 years experience collectively mm. as software engineers. I don't know how mm. I did it. I over-exceeded my expectations getting people who <laughs> can work at Google to work for me. Yeah. And it was just because I felt like, okay, what's the next step? I didn't feel yeah. like, oh, now we have to go down this. Uh, we have to go down the drain. It's not going to work. I never think that. And yeah. that's why I, uh, it sends me to the next question. We, we, we tend to want to teach people to, to be entrepreneurs. Does that work? Because I feel like some people are just made different. And it's, a, so, it's such a difficult and lonely journey that Ooh. maybe some people are just made that way. Um, <clears throat> I think there are two answers to it. It's like leadership, right? Some people are born leaders. They don't need to be taught. And yet there are quite a number who also can learn to become leaders. And I, I think entrepreneurship is like that. Um, just grouping hundred, you know, thousand people in a classroom to teach them entrepreneurship doesn't mean that you have even half of those turning out to be entrepreneurship. It might give them an idea, but then you might find maybe 10 out of the thousand becoming, you know, influential or significant entrepreneurs. But there are also just, I think the majority of entrepreneurs are born and majority of entrepreneurs have stories to tell. Majority of entrepreneurs have a particular time where there is the distinct departure from the norm to go on this crazy journey, you know. So I would say, yes, majority of people who are in that space are born but there are also quite a number who can learn 
to become entrepreneurs just like you can learn to become leaders but to but for the teacher or you know or the state that is encouraging entrepreneurship just because you teach it doesn't mean that you have the outcome that you're looking for yeah um that article i wrote i i argue Mm -hmm. that it's not actually about the eventuality that people become entrepreneurs but the lessons that they learn in the process so even if Mm. they fail at being entrepreneur i think everybody needs a cash course on on that because i am big on the resilience which Mm. COVID 19 has i guess reinstated that in all our minds that no matter what there's going to be times where we are uncertainly hisses and entrepreneurs are some of the most resilient people and everybody needs a cash course on how to be resilient because that's the unpredictability of life and mm-hmm. no matter how you prepare, it's just going to hit you. And we need to be strong enough for that, but also embrace the weakness that comes for it because obviously you cannot pretend to be strong all the time. Yeah. Um, mm. So leads me to less, um, I guess, critical questions. You were a fan of Lois Hamilton and um, Tiger Woods. How did that happen? I mean, you talked about sports. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I think I'm a sports fan. I mean, I, I grew up being, you know, in the early part of my life, I was the only girl amongst how many boys? Four, four strong boys, strong-minded boys. So literally, I think I picked up my sports from my dad and my brothers. Um, and I think if you ask my husband now, he would say, you know, if you come home, if you come to the house and there's a football match or athletics or tennis, you know, Surely I'll have the remote on those. Um, and, and I think it's, I think for me, sports is also parallel to um, entrepreneurship. My favorite sport is actually tennis. Tennis reminds me of, you know, being on an entrepreneurship journey. When you're playing singles, it's between you and the opponent, right? Your coach will tell you everything before the match. But when you get on the court, you have a problem in front of you, which is your opponent, and you have to solve that. And my favorite tennis player, sorry, to, you know, Federal, Nadal, sorry, Federal fans, <laughs> Nadal, <laughs> Nadal is my all-time favorite. And of course, the women is Serena. Nadal, because he doesn't give up. He, you talked about tenacity, right? Yeah. Nadal is the epitome of tenacity on the court. And his ability to improvise and to solve problems, his ability to be able to lose a match that he nearly won and still come back the next year and win like five tournaments in a row. Or, you know, a guy who is beating at the Australian Open, you know, in very weird circumstances, booed off the court, you know, comes back the next year and wins how many Grand Slams? A guy who's won, you know, 11. Australian Open title, um, French Open titles, and decides he would do the 12 and play with the same level of intensity as if he was playing for his first. You know, a guy who gets wounded for half of a year and everybody says that's the end of Nadal's career, comes back and ends the year, the next year, at number one. You couldn't be a better entrepreneur than Nadal on the tennis court. And I think that is. One of the things that anytime I'm watching him, I'm taking with me 
break me 10 times, I will get up 11. It's my mantra as well. Um, Tiger Woods and Lewis Hamilton. I mean, Lewis is in a sport that's predominantly white. That alone is a challenge. If you've lived abroad, you would see being a black person in certain circumstances. It's just challenging being there, you know. It's almost like you are not wanted. And Lewis has made sure that he's going to break all the barriers set him. He's going to break records. He's going to use that platform to be a voice, to talk about what it means being black, even to the point where his you know, the Formula One boss says there is no space for this sort of discussion there. He decides that he's going to do that. And some of these lessons, and as much as I enjoy watching Formula One, it's not just about watching the cast move. It's also about the lessons that I'm taking with me from the participants, especially like Lewis, into my own entrepreneurship journey. It's valueless. I can't get that from a classroom, you know, and Tiger Woods is the same, right? How many black golfers do you know at the top of the game, you know, who have the opportunity to use that platform to talk about? I mean, he's not political in a sense, but I just think it's about that tenacity, the mental fortitude to be able to be in a space where you're typically deemed unwanted and yet you go ahead and outperform all expectations to the point where those who don't like you have to like you, um, it's one thing that all entrepreneurs can take with them. And sports for me, it's beyond the enjoyment. It's also about life lessons on this entrepreneurship journey. Yeah. You are one of the very few people who takes sports a little too seriously, I guess. Philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I find myself doing that. And I'm happy that there is someone who does that. I don't like sports too much. But I find myself being overly critical of everything in a way that I have to notify everything. Which, which, is a, which is a nice thing to see that someone... Yeah. That I don't feel but over- it's also dedication, isn't it? I mean, look at all these sports guys, you know. Look at the amount of time they spend on training, you know. A discipline. Mean, imagine, it's a discipline. It's a mental discipline. It's a physical discipline, you know. Is the ability to get it all together when you need it to be all together and the ability to be able to admit it when you failed and, and just the knowledge that, you know, you cannot achieve without putting in the work. It's such a crucial life lesson, especially in these days where people think that you can get everything on a silver platter, you know, you don't put in the work, you don't get the results. It's just a, a plain, simple fact, even for entrepreneurships. You know, you, you have to put in the work. You have to hustle. You have to stay up night. You know, you have to put in your money. You have to put in your time, your effort, your mental fortitude. Sometimes your family have to feel it. You know, you have to put in your all. You can't go in half. You can't dip one foot in and one foot out. Like you have to be in it, you know. Um, and that's it. When you're starting, a, you know, the entrepreneurship journey, you have to, if you don't put in the work, it will collapse after two years. It's plain and simple. I just want to explore this thought with you. Um, there are some people who are very much proponents of the idea that um, people should, you know, ease off in life, should not take life too seriously and all of that. And I think that is good 
um, entrepreneurs um, sometimes are, are told to, you know, not to be too serious if you find work-life balance. So I, I guess I want to explore this work-life balance um, scenario with you. Do you think there is anything like work-life balance? I think we should. I think, yes, you should have work-life balance, um, you know, for our own well-being. Because like you said before, entrepreneurship is a very lonely journey. And so you need to be there. You need to have yourself intact or at least at 95% to operate at that level that is needed to carry your business ahead. Um, And I think, yes, we put in all the effort, but you should also know when to down the tools and take some time off. I think mental health is so crucial. There are a lot of entrepreneurs who suffer mental health issues because you know, it's just too much. And I think, you know, I mean, when I started out, no one told me about mental health. You know, you just had your breakdowns and you pick up yourself and, and move on. But I think it's important with all the information available now that, you know, entrepreneurs can have that freedom and flexibility to, to take some time out and just relax and take stock of what you've done, all the efforts you've put in over time and just, you know, enjoy the little games. You know, it's very hard, right, to just... Imagine you said you, you lost a partner along the way with your new project, yeah, and then you found these new guys with a combined experience of 14 years. It would be nice for you to take a bit of time up to enjoy that milestone, wouldn't it? And to just see how that all fits in um, and also just reboost your energy to move on and i think it's important for us to do that it's important for entrepreneurs to sleep um you know have a good sleep so that you can come back re-energize it's important for you to have a good physical exercise regime um you know exercise make sure you put in some time for workouts and things like that eat well um move a lot more Things like that, you know, try and have some networks that you can bounce off ideas, you know, chill out time with your family or friends to, you know, just have some time to deliberate ideas so you're not stuck in this rut of just thinking your business, your business. Because in the end, if you don't have that well-being, that business will collapse because when you need yourself more, you might not be able to give more of yourself because you are not well, you know, physically or mentally. So um, tell us about this nonprofit that you have um, as a spin-off from the proceeds from Avigil, I think. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, my pet, that's my pet project. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm sure if you picked up, I, you know, of course, I was bereaved at a very young age. You know, I lost my dad when I was 10. And that was a very painful event for me because my dad was my best friend, I would say. Um, and, you know, I think that experience, you know, I didn't have the chance to grieve. I didn't even understand the concept of death. I wasn't allowed to even understand. Everyone wanted to protect us as children. You know, people would say, oh, you don't have to go into the house or don't talk about your dad. You know, it's, 
it's also shrouded in secrecy, right? Especially in Ghana, death is like a taboo topic. You know, no one sits down and says, let's talk about this, at least not in my time when I was growing up. And so I found that event really helpful. And even many years after, even into my adult life, even when I had my kids, you know, I'll have moments where I would just break down and, you know, think all the things that I've achieved, you know, that my dad couldn't see. And just the sheer thought that I couldn't, you know, celebrate his life when I was young because I didn't have the opportunity. So one of the things that I did once um, I started Abgel um, was to create this nonprofit um, organization. And the whole aim is to just provide support. And, and I think it also came out of the fact that I live here and I see the kind of support that the state, you know, has made available and also the charities around for bereaved children. So if you're bereaved in this country as a child, like there is lots of information, lots of support, you know, peer-to-peer or, you know, charities just here to support you as a child and provide you the necessary information that you need to grieve properly. And I think that Ghanaian children, you know, need that opportunity as well. Um, and because it affects, it affects you as an adult if you don't have the opportunity to grieve as a child, you know, if you've lost somebody close to you, even as an adult, it really hurts you. So I grieve is, it's a combination of my life experience and opportunity um, from what I know now to help children who might be bereaved, either by losing a best friend or a parent or a sibling. Um, and just pointing them to the right resources, but also where there's the need providing practical support for them to know that they can. It's okay to grieve as a child. It's okay to talk about the person you've lost without feeling guilty or afraid of ghosts. You know, suddenly the person you love because they had died, you know, you're, you're being told that they've become a ghost to scare you so you can't really grieve them. I think it's wrong. And that's why I grieve is so crucial for me as well. Yeah, I think it's so peculiar in what's trying to achieve because I don't know of any organizations that are trying to do that. And it's, mm. it's such a wonderful thing um, because that is part of the life that we live, no matter how we want to ignore the fact that it exists. And it would happen one way or the other. And especially for young children, I think it's a, it's a wonderful yeah, and you know, you see what happens in the orphanages. Do you, I mean, I went to visit those two children's home before, and it was really sad, right? Sometimes it's, it's, it's just, you know, they're just little things you can do to make somebody who is bere- a child who is bereaved's life, you know, just easier for them. Putting them in an orphanage and not providing any support is not one of them, you know? It's um, and so this is crucial. I mean, I hope that um, at some point we would be able to raise enough funds to just provide that needed support for people in Ghana or even Ghanaians living here who are still having those traditional um, sort of setups around death and bereavement, even here in London, you know, to give them access to the necessary information. So, the other non profit that you work for is the DWIP Eukamia Trust um, yeah. organization. And I want you to tell us about that. How did you get involved? 
do you know whether you were in Legon when a certain Lebanese Ghanaian called Danny White came to Accra looking for a donor? He had leukemia. Were you there? Maybe 2004 or 2005 then? No. Um, no. So I was in Radio Universe and um, a friend of mine, I was in Aquafo Hall by then, and I had these medical students who were friends of mine. And one of them gave me a call to say, there is a guy who is of Lebanese and Ghanaian heritage, and he's been diagnosed with leukemia in London, and he's been looking for a match for a long time, but couldn't get one. So he's coming to Ghana to see whether there will be somebody who would have that genetic composition to help save him. So when I heard that, you know, I told him on Radio Universe, I'll give him the opportunity to come. He came and spoke and after that interview, I was just so moved that I, I spoke to my medical student friends and we organized a leukemia, um, you know, donor drive on Legon campus. And I think we had about 300 students turn up to see whether they were a match for Danny White. I mean, at the time, I had no intention to travel to London, right? So it was just purely something that I did out of my heart. Unfortunately, Danny didn't get a, a donor. And so he passed away um, in London. And so when I moved here, um, I got in touch with the charity because before he died, he decided that he would... Um, <clears throat> when he was dying, apparently, he met another Caribbean guy who also had leukemia and they shared the same ward and they talked about this and they decided they'll set up a trust fund so that people of black, Caribbean or you know this weird African heritage mix um, where they can have the opportunity to have a donor in case they have a, um, an episode like that and so the DWIB Leukemia Trust Fund was set up and not long after Danny White passed away so when I came to London I looked for them and um, Ivor the other part of the trust fund he is still alive praise God um, so I got into touch with them and started working for them on a, uh, I joined their board and started providing comms and fundraising advice for them. It's a very important trust for me, Isaac, because, you know, when we talk about things like leukemia, I think maybe a lot of people die in Ghana from leukemia without even knowing. Yeah. Um, here in, in the UK, there's a lot of um, drive, publicity, you know, trying to get the black community to become donors or be on the donor register so that they can give um, stem, stem cells to people who get it. But it's a very difficult thing because there's a culture of, you know, secrecy and all the things that come with, um, donate, you know, blood donation, organ donation and all those things. So for me, when a black person gets leukemia, you know, it's actually like you've got 50-50 chance of living because it's, you're probably not going to find a match on the register because the people who can match for you are probably not on the register. And so DWIB is a very important charity for the Afro-Caribbean community, either here or home. And so, you know, people should you know, visit the website and see. And if you're interested in um, being on the register, it's just a little prick 
to take your blood and you know you if they'll put your genetic match on their register so that if somebody gets um leukemia they can just see if you match and if you match then you can save that person's life so people should visit that website and see if this is something that they'll be interested in as well yeah um definitely i think that some of these diseases don't have a lot of publicity especially on the african continent so the work of putting that in the limelight is definitely great um my last question to you is that you obviously, I mean, you seem to have a lot of passion for youth um, entrepreneurship, youth work and all of that. I, I want you to reflect back on when you were young. What was something that you, um, something that you know now that you didn't know then and that has physically changed your life or changed your perspective about life? <laughs> that change is a constant in life. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay the change is a constant in life and also that success is not linear that just because you come from a good home went to the best schools doesn't mean that automatically you'll be successful (laughs) 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 like if somebody had told me that honestly i probably would have dropped out of lego a long time ago Okay, okay, yeah. okay. So I think those are those are crucial, right? And I mm-hmm. think I've started telling my kids about it even now, just to prepare them mentally. Um, but just because you have a certain lifestyle growing up doesn't mean that success is guaranteed the way you see it. It's not a straight line. There are so many curves. Yeah, some people never even get to the end of the straight line. They just keep winding up down curves and stairwells, you know. Um, so it's crucial that p- children know that because it also builds their resilience for what is ahead in adulthood, you know. And the other thing that I said is change. Change is a constant. People need to understand that concept so that when they are in a certain position at a certain point in their lives, they don't expect that that will continue for a long time changing circumstances, moving house, changing jobs, losing partners, losing parents or divorces in families, sibling rivalries, you know, changing government, changing location, you know, changing your salary. <laughs> like people really need to, you know, they have to teach that in school to build people's resilience to the challenges that are ahead. If I knew that, Isaac, a long time ago, (laughs) I probably would, I don't know when I would be a better person, but it would have just saved me a lot of, you know, the tears and and all the questioning in my life. Yeah, I think think that is a very deep thing. You know, you going on giving all these examples, I'm just thinking about it. Mm. I don't think I've thought about it that way. And Mm. so that's a very, very... um, it's a, it's a thought um, for us to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much, Adisa, for being on the Change Africa podcast. It was lovely speaking to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Isaac. I just um, want to encourage you as well. I know, you know, this urban um, road thing you're doing, it's a crucial thing needed for 
development in our country. You know, I used to work for Metro Mass Transit. I was there when mm. that company was first signed on. I was one of their first PR people who joined the company. It had so much prospect, you know, about an urban rapid transport system for our country. And I hear it's down the drain. You know, urban planning. My dad was an architect, town and country planner. Um, and I know he was passionate about these things as well. So it's a crucial thing you're doing. I just want you to not let go. If anything, build partnerships to get it bigger. Our country desperately needs that sort of thing in order for us to move any step, you know, closer to where we need to be. So be encouraged and reach out anytime you need help. I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't have the brains like you do. So, but <laughs> why do you think that? <laughs> why do you think that? I think that people, you are the engineers and stuff, you know, no, no, but, but no, no. Help, <laughs> let me know. Yeah. 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 Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. I think you're a very good conversationalist, by the way. Thank you. That's my job, Isaac. I'll do it otherwise. <laughs> uh, yeah, I almost forgot that. I almost forgot that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. okay. All right. Yo, have a good evening. You too. Bye for now. Okay, bye. Bye. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, consider supporting our fundraiser to help us build a mini home studio. This will help us produce a better audio quality and enrich your overall listening experience. Find the link to the fundraiser in our show notes. Special acknowledgement to those who have supported us already. And my team members, Gabriel Sakite, our producer and sound engineer, and Nathaniel Opoku, our marketing lead. Subscribe to this podcast to get notified about new episodes every week and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcast. Join us next week for more thoughtful conversations with Africa's most inspiring leaders. 